From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We've been doing it every week for eight and a half years now. For the last two and a half, we have been mostly remote. Coming to you via Zoom, it allows us to mostly all be here most weeks as we are this week. For this quarter and maybe one more quarter, we're all four going to be here. That means Eric Bradlow's here, Shane Jensen's here, Adi Weiner is here, and this is Cade Massey. Gentlemen, it is Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up as it usually does on SiriusXM tomorrow morning. It'll be replayed a few times on SiriusXM and then be podcast as well. This is a big day. Uh, we've got a lot of sports to talk about. We're going to spend some time on college football because that is really the playoff speculations really kind of maxing out right now. We've got a couple of interviews. We're going to talk volleyball analytics in Q2. We're going to talk athletic department leadership management. We've never had an AD. We've got the University of Texas AD Chris Oconte on in Q4. In Q1, let's just find out what's on your mind. I want to start us off at least a touch, a touch on the world outside, which we're kind of neglecting for the next two hours, the elections, midterm elections. What do you think is important for us to keep in mind tonight? I've, I feel like I've been better over the years because I'm sitting here with Audie Weiner on often around elections, and he gives me something that kind of improves my thinking a little bit. What should we be thinking about as we start taking in returns later tonight in terms of forecasts and models and making sense of the world? So I think we should think about what the pub polls have said and then tomorrow, or maybe it won't even be tomorrow, and um, we'll even, may not even know who's won. But at this point, it looks like most of the models are saying it's going to be a tight race for both the Senate and the House, but it's looking house, slightly favorable. It's looking slightly fa- you know, str- I mean, strongly favorable in the House for the Republicans and slightly favorable for the Republicans in the Senate, but close. Okay. So, which means that that it's kind of like you know what it, what I love when a pollster save you know sixty percent because it's not rolling dice. It's not hard to understand what the hell they're talking about because um, it's the data that's random. It's not it's not what the electorate is going to do. It's it's how we're going to judge what the electorate is going to do given what we're observing. And what we're observing is just not that conclusive. And so the question is why is it not that conclusive at this point? How come we don't know? And uh, and a lot of that is polling concerns, and that's just sort of creeped into this process over the last eight years, six to eight years, like not really sure if what people, what the data being gathered is actually going to hold up come election night. Okay. So for example, it might not be representative of the folks who are going to vote. We may have a harder and harder time getting to exactly. the people. We don't even vote. know who's going to show up. That's always the hardest in the midterm election. Who's okay. going to show up? I can tell you that in the one you know governor's race that I'm watching really closely, which is the one in New York, um, the goal there is uh, to get the, the Democratic base to show up because um, yep. it's usually just a, a pro forma. The goal for the Democrats who your daughter's working for. Oh, yes. I, it's, a, it's a family matter, I have to say. Um, I don't live in New York. Um, so, you know, my daughter works for the Democrats. She'll be out of a job if, if the governor, Hochul, loses. And it's what's fascinating here is she's a moderate Democrat. She's not a uh, she's not a, a progressive uh, Democrat. And um, and yet the progressive Democrats need to show up and support her if they're going to win because of the turn the election has taken in the last few weeks. Interesting. Yeah, I, I was going to remember that I remember this one statistics lesson one of my advisors gave me when I was a grad student, which was, you know, people don't understand the 
standard error of the difference in polls, which means you'll see one poll that'll say, you know, I'll just use it up, Governor Hockle up 2%. And the next poll will be like, I, I don't even know, uh, Adi, who's Governor Hockle uh, running against? Uh, she's, she's running against Lee Zeldin, a, a congressman. Lee, Lee Zeldin. Okay. And so Lee Zeldin will be up 1% of people like polling doesn't work. No, you see, here's the thing. The standard error in the difference between two proportions, because one's the first poll, one's the second poll, is actually larger than the standard error of any given poll. So difference in polls actually moves around quite a bit. And so, it, you know, people say we've taken enough sample size so that the standard error of this poll is plus or minus 3%. That's the margin of error. Well, that means the margin of error of the difference between the two polls, you have to take each standard error, square it, add it up, and then take the square root of that. So the standard error of the difference between two polls, even if each poll has a 3% margin of error, could be 4 to 5%. Mm-hmm. And so when someone says, oh, in one poll, Warnock's up, and the next poll, War- Walker's up, these seem inconsistent. The difference in polls, again, has a larger standard error than any given poll. You know, let me just throw, throw a third. I just saw some of these polls, even the ones that are kind of highly rated. Their response rate is in the low single digits. Mm-hmm. And right. So a lot of this is done with post sampling or stratification adjustments. You know, so they they have to sort of imagine that the that the low sample, the low non response rate can be overcome with weighting systems. And I just wonder how well that really does work. You know, non people are, who respond are different from respondents, and we know that. And and can you really make an accurate forecast in a tight race with just respondents when the response rate is two percent? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing I always think about on these types of election nights is that these aren't you know these kind of forecasts that we make for each state, for example. It's not like adding up a bunch of independent coin flips. They're highly correlated with each other because whatever processes are leading to voter turnout are probably shared a lot. A lot of those dynamics are shared by, you know, different states or different like like local localities within a state. And so you look at something that is supposed to look like a very close election, like 50-50 sort of thing. It could end up going quite dramatically towards one you know, you know, either red or blue quite dramatically because a devi- you know, a deviation in one state away from that 50-50 is actually somewhat correlated with deviations of oh, the same absolutely. type across the state. Yeah, let's I, I wanted to bring that's exactly what I was gonna bring up. Let's remember the admitted mistake of five thirty-eight in the twenty sixteen election was the idea of these correlated errors, which Shane talks about. And so you know, the minute Florida went for Trump in the 2016 election by a very much larger margin. Yeah. I mean, I think oh, I think Clinton was predicted to win. And then it might have been a three or four percent difference. We were like, well, that won't have any implication for Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Ah. Yeah, but no. <laughs> and that's also it actually it, it's Shane's point beautifully ties together his own point and Adi's point, which is when you have this high non response rate, then you have to think about who are the non responders and are there correlated non responders? across states. And so that can have a huge impact on the results. And to be honest with you, right now, for today's election, I don't know which party necessarily. I think, historically, Republicans less likely to respond. However, as Adi said, on the other hand, counterbalancing that, there are more registered Democrats in many states than 
Republicans. So then the bigger variable is the big turnout. What's the uncertainty there? And, that's and there's externalities, even that like weather and all this type of stuff. It's not like it's not like it actually is kind of like locked Fain, you bring in up an and we just point. haven't estimated it properly. Actually, it's, yeah. It is truly random. They actually There's talked about this on the air. Today. They talked about this on the air today is that the fact that it's a nice weather day in the Northeast is probably a better thing for Democrats because more people will show up. The Northeast tends to be more Democratic than not in other parts of the country. It's hard to know. Um, but also there's the counterbalancing part that who tends to vote on election day more, it tends to be more Republicans than Democrats. So it's, it's hard to know. Matter of fact, I think the following, I don't, I don't know if the following statement is true, but it, it's, uh, there's a hypothesis. If there was no voting on election day, Democrats would obviously win many more elections than Republicans. And so you could make an argument that on the one hand, good weather makes higher turnout. On the other hand, who does it turn out? Guys, uh, I don't know if we can do this quickly, but I think to make it concrete, if 538 is currently forecasting a 59% chance that the Republicans win the Senate, Correct. And that has grown over the last week or so from really right at 50-50, last couple of weeks. Yep. What is your, take all this wisdom and what do you what do you carry into the election returns tonight? Like, what is your expectation for probability, if you had to say, your expectation for probabilities that the Republicans right. in the Senate? So I'll go first, just because I follow 538 every single day. As a matter of fact, maybe by the hour. Um, it's going to come down to three states for the Senate, right? It's going to come down to Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. And so those are the three states. And um, I think uh, back to both Shane and Adi's points, um, we'll know a lot by early on because we'll see what happens in Pennsylvania, which way are the polls going. I think the errors, if Fetterman outperforms the polls there, I think that will have information. And let's also remember Georgia's unique. Let's imagine that neither candidate gets 50 percent of the vote because there is a third candidate in Georgia. Then similar to what happened in 2020, there's a runoff. So you could easily imagine a scenario where Republicans are up 50 to 49 after tonight, but they don't control the Senate because we have to wait until December until the actual it would be Warnock Walker runoff. And that's remember what happened. It was 50 to 48 on election night in 2020 and Ossoff and Walker won, which made it 50 50. And because Biden was the president, they had the tie breaking vote. It would not surprise me if we don't have a control of the Senate tonight, unless, of course, Democrats win two out of three of those states where it's 50, 49 Democrats. And it's just a question. Will it be 51 or 50, 50? Got it. OK, Shane, Adi. Well, you know, you're asking you, you just kind of rounded up the issue. Um, the real question for me is, is 59 percent an accurate assessment? I mean, uh, 538 has a weighting scheme and they have these simulations that they do. And and it sounds very fancy. I think at the end of the day, the the uh, systematic bias is bigger and unaccountable. Um, and so I'm going to just think about it. If it's a prediction market, if you offered me two to one, I mean, I've paid two to one uh, on on the Republicans, I'd probably take it. That's um, what that's what right. you're taking. They're offering one and a half. They're talking one and a half to one. I know. No, so the, to the betting line you is. You would so take it in two. Probably, yeah, I think no, they're probably more like one. I just yep. went on to predictit.org, which is one of the wow. betting sites, and they have Republicans at two to one. Well, there you go. So, so I didn't even know that, by the way, I'll just say that. So I think that the betting market is adjusting those odds upward. And, and I don't know whether that's, that's fair, but I believe that Man. there's just an expectation that the Republicans are out, going to outperform their polls, um, as they have in the past. That's so surprising because I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to take the lesson from Audi from election past of like regressing 
the these these forecasts like they, they don't know as much as they think they know there's all these other sources of uncertainty which is necessarily going to make them more regressive so i was going to go the other way and say my expectation is more like 55 45 or something like that well at the end of the day you got to make a bet right <laughs> it's not a die roller oh no, yeah okay. yeah what odds but i'm saying i would i would take the other side of that two to one i guess is what well I'm as a matter of fact i'm That's, on predicted.org right now and i think i'm showing you guys it actually has republicans you have to pay 83 cents and Democrats, 22. There's like a big, obviously. Six to one. Jeez, I, I'm just telling you, this is what the this is the betting odds right here. Yeah, there's too and much. It's not six to one with big, with the big. It's not even four, four or five to one. to one. But you can see they, it's basically two to one, at least in the three states we just talked about, Pennsylvania, Georgia okay. and Nevada. OK, betting markets. It's a nice compliment to uh, to the 538 Shane. I mean, I, I don't really, I think, have anything else to add beyond what we just already kind of discussed. I mean, you know, I've got I've got things I'm cheering for, but, yeah, I'm not, I, I think, uh, I personally would put it, uh, I, I think two-thirds or 70%, you okay. know, to Republicans uh, having control of both, okay. um, both legislatures. Well, the last set of forecasts we made, two of us hit it on the head, two of us didn't. So that was the World oh, Series. Upcom. World yeah, Series. I, I was. I'm not bad. I did predict the winner. <laughs> Three of us picked the right winner. Two of us picked the right number of games, and it went that way. Ultimately, we, we're down to just I don't know 12 minutes or so, gents. I'm very curious to hear your takeaways from this year's World Series. Well, I, sorry. Go ahead. I was at games five and six, but I could. Oh, you know, since you were there, that. you get to speak. Come on, you, 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 you come on. Let's hear it. So well, you go down, me, you meet your son halfway. He, y'all meet halfway. Oh, he's not in L.A. anymore. So No, he's in L.A. That's different son. Oh, the my different son. My really. son's back. My middle son's in L.A. That's right. That's yeah, right. so we met in Houston. But let me first talk about game five. I'll talk about them in combination about one key thing. You know, I think the Phillies in the last three games of the World Series were one for 21 with men in scoring position. And so last, last, it, five, it, last five games, I think. Maybe, maybe it's the last five games. Um, it, you know. This was a, not that four two is a blowout. It's not a blowout. It's a razor thin margin. You know, in game five, the Phillies were down three two in the eighth, first and third, one out. Marsh comes to the plate, just needs to lift the ball to the outfield, hit a ground ball. They were basically giving up the run. I'm pretty confident. Yeah. I don't, I'm not yeah. confident, but the Phillies were certainly back to 50 50, maybe a little better because they're the home team. They'd have a slightly better chance. He strikes out. And then uh, Schwerber hits a hard ball that the first baseman catches because he's playing the line. The, the Phillies were a swing away there from at least being a 50% odds to win that game. I was at game six in Houston. In the third inning, our catcher Sosa lifts the ball to the outfield that right off the bat, I'm thinking it's gone. There's this little niche in yeah. Houston Stadium. The guy catches it right at the wall in the niche. If it's two feet to the left, it's clearly out. And then we're a, we're a three-run lead in that game, meaning yeah. the Phillies. And so, to me, that game came down to just a few swings. I know 4-2 may not seem as close as it is, but it having gone to games five and six, it seemed close, but it also seemed that the Astros were the better team in the following sense. They had more hitters capable of doing things. And for the mm-hmm. Phillies, if Harper or Schwarber weren't delivering, maybe Segura, but essentially that was it. And there were seven or eight guys on the Astros that scared me every time they went up to the plate. Mm-hmm. But that was it. It made me think about how much randomness there was right. and a couple of swings go differently. And my prediction, which I'm the one that got neither the winner right nor the games right, my prediction, Phillies and seven, may have been closer to the truth. But that's so, it. so Eric, what did you feel about Wheeler getting pulled? I was I, I could not believe it. You know, um, 
even in the stands, you know, it's, in some ways it's easier to see on TV, but everybody in the stands, you know, again, I'm surrounded by Astros fans in game six. Everybody was like, what are they doing? This guy can't be hit tonight. Let's be clear on the inning. Remember, he hit a batter that, in my view, leaned over the plate. 100%. And then Pena got a looking, you know, one of those look-see hits, hit one up the middle, but it wasn't crushed. Then all of a sudden you take out Wheeler. He had 70 pitches. No one was touching him at all. And I figured that was a go-for-broke scenario, meaning, you're right, you bring in Alvarado. Could he strike out the side? Absolutely. But he could also do what he did. There's no way, in my view, not no way, I thought there was low probability Wheeler was giving up more than one run in that inning at best. I thought it was a risky strategy. And Wheeler, his last two pitches prior to taking him out, he wasn't fading, Adi, your classic argument that you say, oh, he can't face the lineup for the third time. He threw the last two pitches at 97 and 98. There was nothing wrong with Wheeler. Yeah, it was a mistake. It was just a plain mistake to take him out. You're, you're, you have evidence. We're Bayesians. We update. Maybe there's the good wheeler, the bad wheeler. This was the good wheeler day. Yep. They could not hit this man. Okay. Okay. Shane. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I think most of these series do kind of come down to the, these one or two moments, decisions, or kind of outcomes, like a ball being a few feet from where, you know, you'd like it to be, et cetera. Um, which is why I've always, that's always been the part of the, why I'm really bought into the coin flip model. But I think we can actually now conclude that the Astros do exceed the coin flip model. In the postseason, you they've mean, now been well since 2013. They've yeah, been yeah. in 19 series. They're 14 and five in those 19 series. That's yeah. a pretty good record. The playoff yeah. record, I mean, just, and they've been to the World Series. Do tail times. Pro, by no means tail probability. It's highly significant. Yeah, and, and Shane, they've been to the well, World Series I, four times. But what's odd about that is, are we going to? That's a franchise. There aren't many players that are constant across those no, series. No, 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 no that's right. I, I mean, I, no, and I, I mean, that's part of the reason. Again, the coin flip model. I mean, again, I believe the you know in the coin flip model in general, there aren't a lot of. I, well, actually, there are quite a few. You know, cer- certainly since 2017, the, the Astros have actually held that team together better than most. Um, I mean, look, I, I mean, I'll give you another example of a team that technically exceeds the coin flip model, at least in kind of a points, you know, 5% significant sense uh, since 2013 is the Red Sox. They don't make the playoffs as often, but every time they make it, they win the World Series or close to it. They're uh, they're eight, eight and three in their postseason series since uh, 2013. All right. Well, come on. You got every list has a top and a bottom and a 14 yeah, and five well, is yeah, respectable. Yeah. Yankees are at the bottom. <laughs> they're, they're, six screwing up. they're six and seven. Six and seven. You know, the thing is, each series is not made the same. I mean, those early series when the best teams play the, the weakest teams. And, of course, Astros have done that um, riding up to the World Series. Um, I've never been. A, I mean, I don't I don't hold by the, the, the coin toss model. I just think things are just constantly just a lot more closely than we'd like them to be. That's baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, there is. No, a, no. I, yeah, I mean, no. I, but but I'm, I'm, I'm more precisely defined the coin flip model is that, you know, it, I and I did not, you know, I you can choose the time span in different ways but you know over this time do they you know win significantly more than 50 percent of the series that they're in right it, it, yeah, the, I, my, my interpretation of the coin flip model is that given how small the edges are for the good teams right the, the length of the matchup is just not enough to recover that edge and so I, I would, yeah of course which i, I think makes the, 14 and 5 quite impressive yeah i yeah. would say the two the following two things one is um, maybe I, you know, this is the argument, not arguments, discussions we've been having for eight and a half years in the show. 
Obviously, I put a, you know, I'll say Bradlow's model versus Weiner's model. Bradlow believed in momentum, thought the Phillies had a lot of momentum, which doesn't hold much in that kind of thing. Uh, Adi believes in base rates, which he said a thousand times in the show. Base rate is Astros won 106 games. Phillies won 87 games. Um, what do you expect to happen when 106 plays 87? 106 wins. Well, the, what, look at the teams that the Phillies beat to get there. No. I, like the Braves? The Braves won a bunch of games. They did play a shorter series. I, I, mean, I mean, use that same rationale shorter for series. the earlier rounds. And, uh, like, you can't just use that rationale for the World Series. They, I mean, they made it to the World Series. Well, let me series. ask you a question. I don't even know. What was the Phillies? I, we could add it up. I know the, the Astros must have been, what, 9-2 and two or something in the postseason? What were the Phillies' record? Were they diff- that much different than 500, given they went 4-2? and two? Didn't they win the other two? They went 2-0, and oh, then they won 3-2. Four and two. runs. Four and one against San Diego. Yeah, they won, won four to one against San Diego, and they were uh, three to one against Atlanta, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, I thought it was three two, and then they went two and zero oh against St. Louis. So maybe they were five and two, nine and three, uh, eleven and seven, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, now we're starting to talk about different because this is now looking at individual games within a yeah. playoff, which is inherently, obviously, even more random. But, um, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, so, the, but the base rate, I mean, the, the challenge of the base rate model is what's the right base rate. And so mm-hmm. they, especially when you fight, you have a structural change that's an obvious place to kind of yep. reset. No, and I mean, my little calculation series. They played is, almost is, as well as the, they didn't play. They played almost 600 ball after they yeah. changed managers. It's a very yeah. different record. I mean, I do think that, I, you know, I mean, we, you can, we can form a narrative as to why the Astros really are made to win in the playoffs if you want to. And I'm, but I'm conscious of this being a post, talk narrative you know you can make this narrative about whatever team wins the world series but it's worth pointing out that as eric's kind of alluded to the astros are a team constructed of very versatile hitters they have contact hitters they can also hit for power yep you know they they have incredible pitching that is particularly ideally suited towards teams they completely dominated teams that can only hit for power you know i mean the, the Phillies, I think they had 71 strikeouts in the World Series. That's a record. And I so think you're probably saying, you're, you're saying, for example, if the Phillies were constructed differently and had some slap hitters yeah. in them, that they could have, I mean, they I, don't think, been, I don't think the Astros, the Astros pitching would work nearly as well or would, would be not nearly as dominant against the actual Astros if they could somehow play okay. themselves. Well, this is I mean, given how many players they left on base. I mean, that uh, what game was it that we were texting back and forth, like from the mid innings on about how many men left on base. Players. That was game yep. five. That was again game five. Again, they left again. 12 men on base. Well, mm-hmm. so let's take the Phillies as an example and ask what can we reasonably expect for next year? And that, that turns in part on what your analysis is on this year. And how much credit do you give to Dombrowski, for example, for the moves well, he, he made? On here's the prediction I would make. They're going to win, given they played 60% ball since they changed managers. That's a 97-win rate. They won 87. I'm predicting their number of wins goes up, but their performance in the World Series go, uh, in the uh, playoffs goes down. <laughs> okay. No, I'm saying that's what, to go that's up. what Nobody gets predicted to win more than 95 games. I didn't Not say 95. I just said I, more I'm than predicting they'll win yeah. more than 87. Because okay. they're going to, you know, they'll Not be make the, the World Series. But not make the World Series. Is that what statisticians? Yeah, that's reasonable. Be. I mean, yeah, I, that's I, right. hard to believe that I would. I mean, what's going to change with the Phillies next year? Are they, are they signing anyone? What's no. the, chasing after one? I'd be hard pressed to believe they, that the forecast for the Phillies would be higher than 
than 90, and it may be awfully close to 87 by the time it rolls out in in uh, in. Y'all are being really boring statisticians with this story. I was expecting narratives and. Well, I mean, I I think the Phillies. I mean, the Phil. I mean, the Phillies certainly at that 60 percent clip. You you know, I I would I would actually regress them up too because they were a very different team under Thompson, Um, but they are playing in a tough division. So I mean, like I certainly I would not you know, put over 50% odds that they make the playoffs. But I mean, I think their their team on a positive trajectory and Dombrowski, you know, you can say a lot of both positive and negatively about the way he runs teams, but he doesn't, he's not afraid to spend. If he no, it's great. Maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe they'll get so, Trey Turner. But listen, we got one thing to look forward to next year. Pitch clock next year. No shift oh, next yeah. year. Baseball's gonna be big bases next, next year. year. Pickoffs are going to be limited. This yeah. is going to help so much and change things in, in unpredictable ways. Yeah. We'll have to study up over the winter. Here's the thing next year that I'm most looking forward to. All that sounds fun, but what I really want to see is Otani playing for somebody other than the Angels. Now I know he's contracted through the end of the season, but maybe they're moving midseason. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of drama about where he goes. I guess I won't be thrilled if he ends up with the Dodgers or Yankees. <laughs> well, I'd rather no. spread the wealth a little bit, but hope you know it's going to be a what fun about, time. Uh, underdog team like the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Well, Shane, they didn't make the playoffs this year, which means they'll probably win the World Series next year. And they're next just going to give Aaron Judge a piece of the Yankees rather than the five hundred million he won. <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> right. All right, guys, that's been a little election and a little World Series to kick us off Q one. We still have three quarters to go here on Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this quarter with my longtime collaborators and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. Eric Bradlow is in and out today. He's stepping away at the moment. He'll be back in. And you guys can step in in a way. We'd love to hear from you when you do. You can follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Send us your ideas, your feedback, whatever you got. We follow our guests and tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics out there. You can also hit us up by email. We have a mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love to hear from you. We read everything we get. We get as much of it as possible on the air. We have another interview segment here this week in Q2 and Q4. This week, this quarter, we are delighted to introduce to Wharton Moneyball World Volleyball Analytics. Y'all don't know what you've been missing. There's more going on out there than you know. And to help us get caught up, we have two full-time analysts from that world, Jesse Sulzer at the University of Texas and Brian Hurler at the USA Women's Team. Gentlemen, thanks for making time with us. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Delighted to have you. Delighted to have you. This um, is the first of two UT guests today. By chance, they weren't scheduled this way, but it lands this way. We're not being Homer. One of the reasons we have Jesse is that we've run across Jesse before, but they are the University of Texas volleyball team is number one in the country, has been since, I don't know, week one or so. They After a quick shuffle at the top and famously one of the better volleyball programs in the country, Brian's team is coming off there national world championship olympic gold medal and brian's been there with the women's olympic team since january this year jesse's been in his spot since three years or so ago coming up on three-year anniversary guys uh, why don't we start out by 
just helping us and our audience, but even us. I mean, we don't know much about volleyball analytics either. It's like, what does analytics and volleyball look like? And, and I mean, you guys are full-time doing this stuff. What is it that you're doing? What is, what is it that analytics contributes to volleyball? So I think uh, from my perspective, a lot of what we're doing here at Texas is uh, scouting opponents and then scouting ourselves uh, on one side of it. And then the second side of it is doing some research about the game of volleyball and what's effective. So most of what we're doing is splitting the game up in certain segments and trying to to be better at those segments. And um, that's the weekend and week out for us, analyzing ourselves and getting ready for our opponents. What are the segments in volleyball? So uh, I think the biggest thing is offense versus defense is the the most basic thing. And then uh, individual player analysis, of course, and then by skill and then rotational analysis. So uh, in volleyball, we are talking rotations and Brian may call them different than we call them because internationally, I'm not even sure they're using USA Volleyball, but uh, it depends on where the setter is. So for us, like when the setter is in right back, that'll be rotation one, the setter is in middle back two and going forward around the wheel uh, through six. So different things happen at different points in the rotation. Different plays are more or less effective. This is what this is the point of what you're saying, yes? Right. So because the players are rotating through the back row and the front row, uh, there'll be different players that are in certain areas to start the rally, and then they'll be allowed to do certain things if they're in the front row versus the back row. So you'll see some different formations, and you'll see some different plays run based on uh, the rotation that – uh, so like your, your best blocker might have to start out in the back or might be limited in where she can go on the court. And so that dramatically changes what's going to happen if she's not at the net. Is that, is that the right way to think about it? That's correct. Okay. Okay. So one of the things you're saying is you're, you're scouting own tendencies and other sides tendencies, and that's going to give you some strategies to play on the other side. But then you also said, just understand the game of volleyball. So what do you, what do you mean by that? And maybe you can give us an example of, a way in which you understand volleyball differently now than you did when you started your career. And even though you've only been in Texas three years, you've been at other stops. You're at Stanford. You're in fact, you were at Stanford before Brian was at Stanford. How would you say analytics has changed the way you think about volleyball or maybe even the way your coaches and players have thought about volleyball over your career? Sure. I think just looking at what actually is effective and what is not effective. And I think there's a lot of people that are like, Oh, that, that looks good. That happened once. And, Okay, uh, well, what's the numbers behind it? And a very simple aspect, like people people weren't using numbers for a long period of time, uh, or they weren't using robust numbers, or they weren't splitting it into the right uh, phases of the game. So, for instance, like the back row attack when you're out of system is not as effective as throwing it up for a high ball to the outside is something that that we've found. So those type of things i'm sure brian's got some examples from usa volleyball as well that they're they're looking at but that would be a quick one right yeah i i think uh, a lot of times we're trying to answer coach questions uh, questions from coaches on something that they think would be effective but they're looking for that confidence to really make a strategic change so one example that i've seen uh just in volleyball across the board and it's definitely pertinent at the ncaa level as well as international is in an area we call out of system setting where ideally in a perfect world our players are passing the ball or digging the ball up to the net and our setters there waiting and they're in a great spot to set any hitter but 50 yeah. percent of the time that's not happening we have a player they could be in the far back corner of the net and they have to bump the ball uh 30 feet all the way back up to the net 
And yep. traditional wisdom for 20, 30 years was you want that ball really far off the net, uh, really far to the side of the court. And that player has a lot of space to jump and hit. Okay. Uh, and I think kind of emerging wisdom is we actually want that ball to be really tight on the net. And we want our attackers to, uh, and not even speaking for USA specifically, but I think this is the theory, is that we want it to be tight on the net where attackers have a chance to use the blocker's hands to take the ball, kind of grab it, throw it in the block, jam it through, and just have more options. And if they're 10 feet off the net, they really don't have the trajectory, the angle, the Ah. space uh, to to make that move. So that was a thing that I think coaches probably thought about, but we just didn't have the data to answer. But with coordinate data, we were able to actually pinpoint every set and say, take a look and put them into little boxes on the court and say, how are we scoring when we're really tight on the net? How are we scoring when we're really far off the net? And I think if you watch the game closely, you'll see a lot of programs that a lot of different levels making that realization that we can actually score really tight on the net if we use the block to our advantage so i think that's just one example of a change in our score okay. that you're just kind of seeing across the board brian help us get calibrated just on, on volleyball you're talking about you're talking about the set essentially come from a bump on the far corner of the court yeah. how 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 coachable is that how doable is that what's the success rate on the play that 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 person's going to make you're saying instead of putting it out to the side off the net put it on the net and i'm thinking the man this person's like diving for the ball or they're barely getting there it's everything's been out of system as you say for that play and yet you're asking them to do this thing that seems precise to me but i'm surely underestimating their ability yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a much uh, lower effectiveness than uh, an in-system play, especially when you look at in-system plays, you have three attackers uh, who are all viable options for a setter. That creates a lot of defensive challenges for the other team in terms of like, how are we going to allocate our blockers to each attacker and what are we going to take and what are we going to give up against any specific team? But these out-of-system plays where, you know, we're just bumping and chucking a ball up there and really like training our players to be efficient at a really difficult play, that still takes up probably 50 percent uh of our offense because how tough teams are serving how tough teams are attacking back at us at our level and at jesse's level so um it is something that I think most teams are training every day and training more and more. Obviously we would love to always be in system and we're striving to be in system through our training, but um, we do have to live in that reality that we are going to be in those less efficient situations, but we have to maximize them if we want to win. It's interesting. It's kind of the opposite of a soccer set piece. Like soccer slowly realized that set pieces are really important. And so they're practicing them more and you're kind of doing the opposite. You're like, well, we practice, we've always practiced in, in system stuff and now we need to work more on the out of system stuff. Super interesting. Shane's trying to jump in here. Well, I I mean, I guess most of what we've been discussing so far is kind of analytics and data helping kind of coaching strategic decisions within a game. The other way in which we've seen analytics really help in other sports is kind of on the individual player level, you know, educating players as far as their own weaknesses or shortcomings in their own game and helping them to be better, basically, to develop better skills. Is that happening as well? Or is most of the kind of early sort of nascent kind of tech, you know, data and modeling going into coaching decisions so far in volleyball? Yeah, I think we look at those things as an individual perspective, uh, kind of on a daily or weekly basis on, hey, how is this one player performing in very specific specific situations? So one of the things that we were looking at is our outside hitters when they're attacking versus the setter versus a opposite, which would be probably a bigger blocker and where they're hitting the ball against those players, uh, particularly out of system and how they're scoring and saying, Hey, this decision-making that you're, that you're, that you have against the setter is working versus the opposite. It's not working. So let's try something different. So all those things are teachable 
teachable ways to to use the numbers. What are you seeing from the from the athletes in terms of openness, and how has that changed over time? We hear in other sports about you know young baseball players coming up; they want the data now because they're so accustomed to it. Where is the openness in volleyball? Uh, I would say athletes are very open across the board. I, I mean, I think in my mind that's one of the markers or just one checkbox for what can make a really effective volleyball coach is understanding the athletes. Uh, I think it's easy uh, to pour a ton of data onto the athletes when it's scouting or whether it's individual performance and overwhelm them. And like, yeah. there is a degree to which you want them to play freely on the court. Like the game can be very simple if you allow it to be, uh, and it can be very complex if you make it really complex. So I think. When I look at really effective coaches, they find that balance and they understand the psychology of their athletes at their level of whether they're a, a really intelligent student athlete at UT and they're ready to take on that extra level of information or there's someone that just needs to say, I just need to shut this off and go out and go ball and play my game. So, um, but I, I think generally across the board, we're seeing athletes kind of engaging with it because it validates what coaches have been teaching them in practice. So it gives them that extra bit of confidence, like as they're getting over the learning curve or adapting to a new thing. Thing, like that out of system setting like that's an uncomfortable play like i might set that over the net and the right. other team might slam it back down at us and like i might do that in front of four thousand screaming ut fans so <laughs> uh, to have, have the numbers say hey like this is a long-term adjustment we're going to make and it's going to look messy when we train it but you know, we know statistically that's going to help us in the long run it's an adjustment we need to make like i i think that having the numbers and communicating that to the athletes pays off a lot if you can do it effectively and you know your players okay can you talk to us about your evaluation at the team level? Like when you look after a match, you how do you know other than the score? Like you won, you won you know, three sets out of four or whatever, or you didn't. Um, and you know the points per set. But beyond that, I mean, this is kind of going beyond the box score. What are you looking at to better understand how you play? What are the, we in other sports, like the fundamentals, the primitives, what, what, the things that are more yeah. persistent. What is that in volleyball? I think on a team level, we're looking at the basic, basic would be side out percentage and point scoring percentage. So how often are you scoring a point when the other team is serving? That would be like your side out percentage. And then how often you're scoring a point when you're serving. And so we're looking at those. Uh, what are the base rates on those, by the way? So I, I think for us, we're looking at somewhere around two thirds of the time, give or take a couple of percentage points uh, for siding out. Uh, those would be good numbers for us. Uh, and a lot of times we're, we're above that and we're a pretty offensive minded team and uh, we've been good at that part of the game. And then if you're on the, on the flip side of it, it above 40 is, it would be really good for us. So, okay. 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 Bri- Brian's might be a little higher, uh, probably on the side out, but, but I don't know his numbers off the top of my head. Yeah, a tiny bit. Uh, just as the game becomes more physical, you move up in age, or like the men's game especially, the, the teams are siding out even up to seventy percent. But the, it's you know kind of the inverse; they're inverted. Uh, as if a side out's happening, then the serving team isn't point scoring in that example. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Okay, what other what what other fundamentals are you looking at? So I think the passes biggest number passes, passes are a thing, are they not? Yeah, I mean they are, but I think the the biggest thing that we see is probably efficiency. So. Uh, attacking efficiency, which would be what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, kills uh, minus errors over attempts. I see. So uh, for us, like right now, we're leading the nation in hitting efficiency. Uh, we have the number one. Uh, Asia O'Neill is the leading the nation and in individual hitting efficiency. And so that's the number that we look. It's a pretty good number to see how your offense is going. And then okay, hold, on, hold, on, hold on, hold on. You said a couple things. We have to jump on there. Asia O'Neill. Who's Asia O'Neill, Jesse? Uh, Asia O'Neill is. 
is uh, a middle blocker for us. Uh, and she's just she's an awesome person. She's having a great year. I'm so excited for her. So, uh, and, yeah. And, and, and uh, she happens to have a father that played in the NBA. But there you go. All right. Uh, she's also coming back from injuries. Is she not? She was hurt early in her career and she's, it's been a bit. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's come back from some stuff and it's been awesome. She's just a great person and I love seeing her every day and like so excited for her to have this season that she's having. She's just lighting it up. All right, so let's go this kill efficiency thing. So to, to give us the actual, like what's typical in volleyball? What's typical for top teams? And then what is she doing? And what, yes. are, the, what are the actual numbers? So efficiencies, you're giving me a ratio, but how many attempts do they get in a, in a match? So, so for Asia, she's hitting, I think, in the four, like upper 400s. And that's like, that's crazy high. Like you you're won't see a lot point, of point four is you just call it 400. Is that's like a batting average. Yeah. Batting average is a great way to think about it. So like anybody in the above a 300 would be like a really, a really nice player, particularly if you're looking at it as a team, uh team stat. Uh, and then each position is going to have a little bit different uh, expectation. So an outside hitter who's getting a lot of balls in a match, I mean, they could take 50 swings in a match versus a middle blocker, which, we can't get to the ball, her to the ball, the ball to her as often. Yeah. Uh, you know, I might have 20 swings in a match, uh, but uh, likelihood of them scoring is higher. So I see. Uh, Interesting. An, out, an outside hitter above 300 is probably a pretty good hitter, probably an All-American at this point in time. And then uh, middle is probably over 400 for the best ones. Uh would be what, what we're looking at. So Asia is in the 480s, and as a team, we're about 330. And so 480, is she an outside blocker? She, 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 she's she's 480 an outside? She's a, she's a middle. She's a middle, okay. What, do, what makes her a middle instead of an outside? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we play her. That's her position. Uh, but she's, she's really good laterally, and she's really good off of one foot. So uh, there's a play in, in volleyball where – the middle blocker will run behind the setter into the the right pin. We call that a slide, uh, and she's she's one of the best at that. And she's really developed her game uh, in the, in front of the setter as well. She was out with with Brian in the national team training uh, this summer, so I think she picked up a lot there. And happy to have her back in our gym this this fall, and she's tearing it up. Okay, very very cool. Brian, you know, you've got you've got Asia making appearances with the national team. It raises the question of how you use analytics to evaluate potential players for the national team. I, I, recruiting or what's the right what's the right term? But I'm guessing that analytics plays that kind of role for y'all. Yeah, I, I think the United States is in an interesting spot because we have the NCAA as a, effectively a, a feeder system or, a, you know, a place where like 99.9% of our athletes are going to play in the NCAA at the Division One level before they eventually get picked up by a United States coach to come to the gym for some length of time. So uh, I think the, the numbers are, pre- are pretty crazy, actually. I think we have like uh, well over 4,000 Division One athletes and then about 40 get invited to the United States training center every year. And then only 12 are making an Olympic roster. It's less than 0.3% of all division three athletes or division one athletes. So, um, are they they made up? Is your team made up exclusively of college athletes? I would have thought that people played long after that. No, no long after that. Yeah, no, but just looking at where most of them are, are they're they're coming from NCAA division one, but uh, the beginning of their Olympic career. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Usually when they graduate from most of them, but if we can get them in a little bit sooner and uh, I don't, 
think that's uh, necessarily a, too bad of a thing, but uh, obviously mm-hmm. their class schedule and things like that make that difficult. But um, yeah, for us, it kind of comes down to just aggregating the information and getting as much data as we can get first off, which uh, we have services now that provide that for the NCAA Division One level. So that's made things much more accessible. And then uh, the biggest challenge in my mind is uh, comparing it in terms of strength of schedule. Like, you, you know, UT is going to play some really difficult teams and that's going to be much uh much, uh, they're going to get much different uh, resulting statistics than a team that's playing at the middle major level. So mm-hmm. sorting through that becomes a challenge in its own. Like, how do we use strength of schedule to normalize that data? And that's something that mm-hmm. we're continuing to look at and try to improve on as uh, just as we grow analytically as an organization, I think, and just uh, our entire analyst community in general in volleyball. Mm-hmm. So Jesse, you must deal with that all the time. Like you evaluate Asia's performance against Minnesota versus against Texas State. I mean, you'd expect you'd expect very different things. Yes. Yeah, the the expectation against a team that is not as high a caliber high a caliber uh, is that we're, that we're going to perform better. But there's some skills that I think are are kind of the same. So like Texas State might have, and they're actually a really nice team, um, and yeah, I don't they, mean they do that. some things, Sorry. but. Uh, yeah. They, uh, the Serbian aspect of the game, it doesn't take as much athletic ability. So we can see some, some trends there where all teams right. are a little bit closer uh, in that aspect. And then when you get to the attacking or the blocking, you're going to see the, the physicality rise to the top. Got it. Um, gentlemen, both, I'm curious what advice you'd have to us as volleyball viewers, whether we're picking up, you know, the people watch it during the season, they watch it more during the playoffs or they watch it during the Olympics. What would you how would you tell us to be more sophisticated viewers? How can we be beyond, you know, ooh, she hit that hard kind of naive volleyball viewers? How can we use analytics to better understand what's going on or what we should pay attention to? Uh, so I think the first thing is like watching a match is awesome, right? Because there's a point like every 30 seconds. So it's super fast paced and the margin of victory is usually pretty small. So we're playing sets to 25. It's usually 25 to like maybe 18 on the low end. So it's usually pretty competitive. And so there's a lot of back and forth and it's really fun to watch. And if you can get to a game and be on the floor and see how physical these young women are, it's, mm-hmm. it's fun to, to be around. So, but if you're watching on TV, just trying to figure out, okay, which players are in the front row and which rotation we're in and how, how that rotation comes up uh, during the match and then where are the mismatches. So if we have a small setter on our big outside hitter and what are we trying to do to exploit that uh, I think is, is, is something to watch for as a, as a casual fan. Uh, we're just trying to, to make sure this, Cause people probably need to be reminded of this, that the guys that the players have to move, they rotate around the six positions after each point. And you're saying sometimes that leads to interesting alignments that can be exploited. So if you have your big blocker and there and it happens to be across the net from where the setter, the poor setter of another team has to be across your best blocker, that might call for a particular strategy. And you're saying we should just pay more attention to that because every point's not the same. In fact, every point's a little different. Do I have that right? Yeah. So like if you're watching football and you have two receivers and then you have like two cornerbacks and like one of them's a really good cornerback and one of them's a, a bad quarterback, but you're like, hey, the bad quarterback has to cover my best receiver at this point in the game. You're like, well, I'm going to take advantage of that over and over and over again. Okay. And so, so those type of matchups come by when the rotations are spinning. So like the matchup game becomes pretty big, particularly when you're playing um, like an even team. Te- te- teams that are yeah similar. Okay. So, you know, we look at those type of things and making sure that we're getting the matchups. I know at Stanford, when I was there, we were looking at it quite often. 
Um, and we were, we were spinning the rotations uh, a bit when we needed to. And uh, it's a pretty intriguing part of the game of how those work out. And then, and then after a game, coaches may spin, we'll call it spin and they'll start in rotation three instead of rotation five, and you'll get a different matchup for the next set. And so they're trying to make adjustments throughout the game. Okay. Do coaches have to announce their rotations without knowing what the other one did? Or is the home team get to go second or what? Yeah. You just, everybody's just putting their lineup in and it is what it is. It is what it is. You don't know what the other team's doing. Okay. Okay. All right, Brian, what tips do you have to make us more sophisticated volleyball consumers? Yeah, I guess two things. Uh, I thought Jesse did a nice job of summarizing the matchups. Like that's huge. And then uh, uh, volleyball is a game of patterns. Like uh, if you have an, an advantageous matchup or uh, you have like a, an amazing hitter like Asia O'Neill, you'll see a team trying to give her the ball more. So I think just looking for pattern recognition can be a really fun thing as a viewer, especially if you're more analytically minded. You'll I think you'll pick up pretty fast what coaches mm-hmm. are hoping their team will do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then uh, – <laughs> I think the other thing, uh, Chad Gordon is a, an analyst friend of ours. He's got a really great blog. So if you're trying to dive into the analytics of volleyball, you can go to volleydork.blog uh, and dive into <laughs> that. And that it is a great read. He's got some awesome articles on there. And um, I, I think uh, our community is making a push to make t- stuff like this more accessible because it makes the game so interesting for people who are into this type of stuff. Well, two, two follow-ups on that. You said volleydork.blog, volley, volleydork.blog by Chad Gordon. Yeah. yeah right, Chad Gordon. Good. I, okay. I, and I think like in the U S Chad, Brian and, and Nate, who's uh, Brian's counterpart on the men's side. Uh, those guys are really just pushing the envelope of what we're doing with volleyball. And it's been, it's been really cool over this last couple of years, the community that's been built around it. We have like a group meet with about 80 people on it now and everybody's wow. really well, you you get questions all the time, and people are helping each other out. And I think uh, in volleyball, it's it's super cool to push the sport forward that way. So, real quickly, give us a sense of how this how this has evolved. How many teams, collegiate teams, had a full time analyst say five years ago? I mean, I think Four. five, five, and now fifteen or twenty, I think. And it's really increased this past year. I think about. Uh, maybe eight new jobs this past year. So that'll be interesting to see um, how we go in the next couple of years. Um, cool. One last question on the, on the consumer front. Let me ask you the simplest thing. We all watch the serves and we all have opinion about serves. How can we be smarter in critiquing the service game? You've already told us that the base rate is that you're not going to win your point. All right. So that's a good place for us to all start, but how else, what, what, how should we consume serving more sophisticatedly? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of debate on like how how many serves you should miss and is serving missing serves. A pro- I think Brian right. said it. Uh, is it a proxy for how hard you're serving? And so, uh, yeah, there's um, there's some strategy of it. And I think the biggest thing is to see the setter location after the passer passes. And so, as that setter moved off the net, and is as as that setter is moving off the net. Usually they can't set the middle, which is the most efficient thing to set, and there be- then it becomes harder to score. So I, and you're I saying they at- had to move off because the passer couldn't get them the ball because the service yeah. the serve was hard yeah. to get. Gotcha. Exactly. Very interesting. All right, Brian. 
Yeah, I was just going to, that's a, a great point. A win probability just goes way down as the setter gets off the net and gets pulled off the net by a poorer pass that, that you can evaluate uh, space, like are teams choosing to serve space or are they choosing to serve a very specific passer and are they putting the ball right on that passer and why? Oh, interesting. And asking that, asking that question, is it because they're not a skilled passer or maybe it's because rotationally they're in the front row and when they pass first, it ruins their footwork pattern and they don't hit as well. So okay. we're looking for those those relationships, either going on at the same time, like two passers who don't have great communication and trying to drive the ball between them or trying to target one passer because we know two touches later, they're not going to hit the ball as well. So I think things like that and that pattern recognition is something that you could do just as a casual observer, just trying to get a sense of what a coach might be hoping to do with a specific serve. Cool. Great. Well, guys, thank you for making time for us. We um, appreciate appreciate your insight. Appreciate your bringing us along a little bit. Love what's going on in volleyball on this front. I'm sure it's going to keep on growing, so I'm sure we'll talk to you more down the road. But Brian, good luck with the Olympic team. Brian Hurler with the U.S. Women's Olympic team. And Jesse with the number one University of Texas Longhorns. Good luck with the season, man. Jesse Sulzer, been there three years now. Thanks, kid. Thanks, guys. Thank Absolutely. you. That is Q2, guys. That's half of our show here on SiriusXM. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Q3. We have got a short-ish quarter here before rolling into Q4. I have a long interview with Chris Del Conte, Athletic Director of the University of Texas in Q4. And uh, we want to talk a little bit, speaking of Del Conte, we want to talk a little bit about college football in this quarter. It is the time in the season where playoff considerations really ramp up. I, I noticed it kind of last weekend, I think, weekend before last, that the field had narrowed in some ways that made it less interesting. There were less super relevant games but this past weekend, a couple of upsets kind of made it a more interesting race. And so we cleaned it up in some ways. It sharpened the focus. And now it's just full on. Here are the teams that are still in consideration. Here are the possibilities. And it's fun. It's fun. So it's kind of a fun moment. It, 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 it turns there faster than the NFL does. We're at the, basically the midway point of the NFL season, but we're really turning into the home stretch on college football. Shane is here with me. Audi will be here momentarily. Eric will be in here momentarily. Shane, anything of note to you on the college football front? Well, again, I, I first pass, I guess I'll kind of mention the very naive sort of like uh, casual f- college football fan observation that it's, you know, it's kind of a unique time to sort of, think about Alabama as being on the outside as opposed to in, right? And, you know, so having like teams like these kind of perennial kind of playoff entries like Alabama and Clemson on the outside, it, it's just a refreshing time to kind of, you know, it, it things seem much more open this year and and to my, you know, view more interesting with, with a lot more kind of teams in play. Yeah, it's funny that I, I agree because it isn't, wide open because we we've narrowed it down to a few teams, but the refresh is exactly the right word because on the same day, seemingly Clemson and Alabama got knocked out. Now Clemson's not knocked out. They could easily still finish 12 and one win the ACC and they will be in the conversation. It's just that most people think they're not going to be that strong a candidate. Most people have been skeptical of Clemson anyway. Not, I think most is fair, not everybody, but most. And then they go just get their butts handed to them by Notre Dame last Saturday, it seems like that they're taking them off the table. And then Alabama 
loses another game at the wire. They've played all these games right down to the wire and they've won two and they've lost two. And it could have been any two and two. They're two and two in these four games. It could have been any two and two, but they've ended up losing to Tennessee and LSU after beating Texas and Texas A&M at the very end. And it's, you know, it's really interesting to see Alabama probably out, you know, barely into November. So yes, Shane, I agree. It's a changing of the guard in some sense, maybe. And it's a refresh for sure. Eric. I'm just wondering, is, you know, you guys have always told me that, and we always do a stat assistant say, you know, maybe we put a little too much emphasis on, you know, pitchers wins. Maybe we're putting a little too much on win loss record. Like, obviously, as you said, Alabama has played four tough games, close games. They've gone two and two. Now, that's not common Bama, right? And so how much do we downgrade them? Like, I, I definitely don't put them in that elite three that there were at the beginning of the year. But if someone told me they're in that next group of three, despite they have two losses, I don't have a problem with that. And, you know, mm-hmm. they just, you know, they played. It's not like they lost to, you know, I don't know. It's not like lost to Wichita State. They lost to Tennessee, who is obviously a very good team. And they lost to, uh, well, whoever they LSU. lost to. LSU. LSU. Yeah. T- top to, both top 10 teams. So, I mean, yeah. that's what happens. And, and, and barely could have won both those games. And barely. Too. And barely. Couldn't, you couldn't lose any closer than they lost, essentially. Uh, so, so my question is is more procedural. You, 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 there's two things to balance. One is your power rank, if you will. Who do you think are the best teams, and also who did the best on the field? Yeah. And we always talk about this every year. Having lost twice, you're, you're kind of uh, already. I mean, you're kind of pushed down the conversation of at least on the field. Um, what's how does it kind of work now? Or is it fifty fifty? Is it? I mean, what? I mean, it's how a does great a, question. A like, like, what is the what is the weight? And, and, and we don't have a precise weight and we, we, we say both of them matter, but no one talks really about which matters more. And what's also true is it's not clear that it's consistent year to year. And even if we run them, we have, we run our models and I can tell you our models right now are looking a little too favorably in my opinion on Alabama and Clemson because they are a little heavier towards the, the quality of the team as opposed to the deservingness. And, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's right or consistent with what's going to happen this year. This is an interesting feature of models in college football. As you get later in the year, your model for the committee, which is very different from your model from what's going to happen on the field, your model for the committee matters more and more the closer you get to the end of the year because the what's going to happen in the field kind of clears up. But no one's good right. at modeling the committee. I mean, we think we do it okay, but God, it's well, not even a stable he, process. Here's what we know that they've said. They, they reward conference champions. We're pretty sure Alabama is not going to be the conference champion right now. I mean, they're probably not even obviously there. They'd have to get a lot of breaks to get to the go to the SEC championship game. They lost twice. So to me, that essentially eliminates them. In other words, that, you know, that's just the way it is. They're not the they don't get the boost for the conference champion. They've lost twice. That's what it is. Well, so there's, you know, LSU could Alabama could squeak in somehow. Uh, you could also see the thing that is always in the model is what if everyone loses essentially? What if you have a multiple two loss people that you have to choose among to get somebody in? That's kind of a backdoor way, but mostly I agree, Eric, mostly Alabama's not going to make it. Let me tell you the way things are shaken out. Well, Shane, jump in. Well, I actually maybe could, maybe this, I'll, I'll fit this question in before you start to shake it out because I was kind of curious. I was just looking at the kind of the 538 college sort of playoff predictor. It's kind of 538. It's my default to go to. And one thing that kind of stood out to me is of course, Tennessee is, up there due to their, you know, eight and one record uh, of having something like a 40% chance of making the playoff, but only a 1% chance of winning the conference. 
Yeah. And is that because of somehow the structure of the SEC that yeah, they yeah, are they, not going to even yeah. get there? Yeah, they they they're that play out that game against Georgia this weekend, past weekend was essentially a semifinal for the SEC. Whoever wins that game is now got the tie break on the other. And so they would have to lose. Georgia has to lose twice. I see, because they're in the just, same section of the they're SEC. They're in the same East. They're both on the East. So that's just yeah. not going to happen. Okay, I see. Um, but, but, but Georgia and Tennessee both have relatively weak schedules in front of them. And so both are likely to end the regular season with one loss. And that's going to mean Tennessee is a very serious candidate. For but LSU is in a similar situation, right, with Alabama. Or Alabama. LSU has one conference loss. And Alabama now has two, and therefore they hold the tiebreaker against yeah. Alabama, and they're a game ahead, right? That's right, and that's why LSU could lose; twi- they would have to lose yeah. twice to get Alabama in. And LSU, they could theoretically lose twice. They're going to A and M, and they're going to maybe Arkansas, but those are they should they'll be favored in both those games. They're unlikely to lose twice, and so that's the same thing over there. LSU probably going to be LSU with Georgia in the championship, and we we have a big. A big margin there with Georgia. That's 85% or something, you know, likely to win that game. So one of the things that's interesting that could happen, it's very reasonable bracket would be an, an all East bracket where you have Georgia winning the SEC and then you go collect Tennessee out of the East, even though they didn't even play the SEC championship game. And up in the Big Ten, the winner of Ohio State, Michigan is going to be in. But then you've got a loser who looks really good, almost as good as Tennessee, the SEC East loser looks. And so we show that as actually the second most likely bracket. And we see it with like maybe a 14% chance of happening, which is you know quite which likely. What, the, big, all the, the, big all the, champ, the, the Big 10 champ, the Big 10 loser, Georgia, and potentially Tennessee. Yeah, but not the Big 10 champ loser, but the Big 10 East loser. So Ohio State, Michigan, Ohio State again will be the you know Thanksgiving weekend in Columbus, and the loser will be in the same position that Tennessee is in in the SEC. They're right. not going to make the title right. game. They're going to be eleven and one team, one of the best four or five teams in the country, and making a good argument to get in. Now, if it's Michigan, Michigan has a famously weak non-conference schedule, and so now we're going to get to Adi's question about deservingness versus quality of team because everyone recognizes not everyone, most people recognize Michigan's one of the top teams in the country, but They've got very few quality wins because they're off. They're non conference. The Philadelphia Eagles of the college world. Yes, very well done. Exactly, Shane. They look good. We believe in them. But if you're going to re- if you're going to reward, you know, if you're going to emphasize deservingness, they may not be there. So what could interrupt? If I'm going to say, here's kind of my default, guys, and I don't even think it's that controversial. It's not a default, but it's really not unreasonable. Ohio State, Michigan, Georgia, Tennessee. We have it the second most likely bracket. What's going to interrupt that? Okay, here are three possibilities. About, well, I'll go four, for one. Four possibilities. Go ahead. Wouldn't Eric. an undefeated TCU? Yeah, an undefeated TCU undoubtedly would interrupt it. I, I, I think there's no question that a Power Five conference champ undefeated is going to get in. But you got to consider what the likelihood of that is. I didn't and, say they were. I you just said what could interrupt it. Well, let's consider both of those things. Let's consider what could and what is likely to. So we show TCU with only like a 4% chance of winning out. So it's not that we don't love TCU. It's just that the Big 12, everyone's kind of even. All the models like Texas a fair bit better. And they've still got three regular season games and a Big 12 championship. And so the chances of them winning through, winning out, we have it at 4%. You mean they're not? They're basically not much more than a half to the fourth, which basically, right? So that's one sixteenth. That's 6%. Matter of fact, you have them less than one half to the fourth. Because that, un- 
No, I'm just saying be... they're underdogs in well, we know they're underdogs against Texas this week, but they're basically, you know, you might even say, well, they're going to the national championship. They're not even favorites in the four games they have left within their conference. Look, the betting line is Texas by seven this weekend. Yeah. So that's, I mean, the three lost Texas is a touchdown favorite. Now they're hosting them, but all the same. Okay. What's the most likely event to interrupt the all East bracket? Well, Pac-12, one of the Pac-12 teams can make it. One of the Pac-12 teams. So you've got three teams out there with one conference loss. And, and one overall loss, USC, UCLA, and most importantly, Oregon. People actually believe in Oregon now. They looked bad that first week. They've looked really impressive since then. And if any of those teams win out, you'll have a one-loss Pac-12 champ with some decent wins over each other because everyone thinks those teams are quite decent. Um, and then you've got an argument about that winner versus the probably the Ohio State-Michigan loser. That's essentially what it'll come so down you to. So you're, you're default taking – the let's call it let's say it's a one loss Pac-12 champ you're taking them against uh they're not taking them sorry against Tennessee I'm taking Tennessee over them I'm saying Tennessee yeah you're taking Tennessee over them yeah I'm saying Georgia Tennessee and the Ohio State Michigan winner are almost guaranteed at this point so we're really talking about one spot and who are the viable candidates and the most likely candidates for that and one of them despite the conference that the committee saying we we love conference champions yeah, I mean they say it. That's but they say they say different things at different times. Okay, and, all right. And but it goes back to Audi's. Like it's like how much there's some weight on that, but there's also weight on best team. And and we've seen them blow off conference champions before. And so it's not it's not this inviolable thing. But moreover, if Oregon makes it through, that's a team that people think is quite good right now. And so I, I think or we we show Oregon as the fourth of the four teams, as the most likely bracket. We think the most likely bracket is Ohio State over Michigan, because we think they're a good touchdown better than Michigan, and they're hosting Um, Tennessee, Georgia, and Oregon. And we have it at something like 17%. And uh, the market, you can buy that on FanDuel. I think you can buy it at like 15%. So we we think it's there's a slight edge there, but we're not that far off how that thing is priced on FanDuel. Um. And the, the thing about it is one of those Pac-12 teams is more likely to come out than not as a one-loss champion. So you're saying, just to be that, clear. Well, you're one, saying, second, one second, Eric, real quickly. Yeah. We're showing that there's a 60% chance of a one-loss Pac-12 champion, whether it's in Oregon is the most likely, but one of the reasons that's a likely event is that there are three different runs at it. USC, UCLA, and Oregon all could be that thing, and we think it's more likely than not that one of them will emerge as a one-loss champion. Now, the stronger the team it is, the better the argument is going to be against the Michigan-Ohio State loser. But that is a very reasonable bracket is to slide those, the winner of that, champ, that, that conference in there as the fourth team. Yeah, no, I was just going to comment. We always talk at the beginning of the season you know, about how much uncertainty there is in the bracket. And I, you'll remind me, maybe Massey Peabody using a, unabated, like at the beginning of the season, has the highest probability one at, I don't know, 8%, 6%. Even look, we're nine games into the season. And the highest probability one now has what, 14%, 16%? I mean, I'm just, I'm just pointing out that everyone say, oh, it's got to be 80% right now. No way. It's not even it, 25% right now. It's just common at dorks. Or, well, you guys can tell me what it is. There's just too many permutations. It's basically, you know, like 12 choose four. Yeah. And so no. you can whittle it down to 12. And even, I mean, they're not all equally likely, right? But there's the permutations that are possible at the beginning of the season are in, you cannot get your head around them. And it squishes down the probability of any one four team bracket. I mean, squishes it way down. 
And even this point in the season, it's a great point, Eric. The most likely bracket. Well, there's the two most likely. I mean, there's a 31% chance that it'll be in our model. Georgia, Tennessee, the Michigan-Ohio State winner, and either the Michigan-Ohio State loser or Oregon. There's a 30. That's 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 that covers one third of the probabilities. You'd think we'd be covering more at that point, but that's, that's one third point. of the probabilities. Yes, exactly. Um, what else is interesting around here? We show LSU with the six percent chance of running the table. That would complicate things. That'd be fun if they did that because that would be a great argument. We saw Ole Miss with only a, a 0.1, like less than 1% chance. Another team that would be in the conversation if they did it, we've been given Clemson the ACC, but they still have to beat UNC in the ACC championship. And we show UNC with a 12% chance to run the table. So I think one of those, either UNC or Clemson, will be in the conversation. And I think people will give them time on air, but I, I, it just doesn't seem likely that they'll be slotted. Your, your, your point also is there. there's likely to be, potentially, two one-loss conference champions, maybe the Pac-12 and the ACC. Mm-hmm. There's likely to be two SEC, not an SEC and a Big Ten non-conference champion, also with one loss. That's right. Those That's four right. teams, at least, will be able to make a legitimate claim that they deserve to be in there. The and, last two spots. Yeah. And that's, and that's the way it is. I mean, that's just until they expand the playoffs, that's just what it is this year. Yeah. And, and, and reason and TCU could reasonably a one loss champ of the big 12 and they would be oh, uh, well, the way into the conversation as well. They, these are relatively weaker options than an Oregon um, or than the, than the, like say a Michigan. Um, I want to share one other small detail that, that at least I was entertained by. I think y'all might be entertained by. I, I got an, a, a, a text exchange with Rufus last night because we were tweaking the model and there was a bug in it for a minute. And so it gave us reason to be a little skeptical. And he, he texts me and he says, we show Texas with a 50% chance of winning the Big 12. Okay, this don't dismiss this because it's a Texas anecdote, right? This is a modeling story. So don't y'all pay attention. They say, 50% chance, Rufus says 50% chance of Texas winning the Big 12. I'm like, well, you've got a bug there somewhere, Rufus, because there's no way Texas is 50%. And the reason I'm saying that is because they've got three regular season games and a, t- and a title game. They, we know that if they went out, if they went out regular season, they'll make the title game. Despite having two losses, this is what Texas fans are on right now. If they have two losses, they went out, they control their destiny, and they're going to be in the title game. So they have to win out. But what, if you say, I've got to win four games to win the conference championship, that's not going to be 50%. I mean, there's no way. Two of those games are against TCU. There's no way. And Rufus says, well, we show them getting the title game even with a loss. As long as they beat Kansas and Baylor, they could lose this game this weekend to TCU, and they would likely still make the, the Big 12 championship as a three-loss team, which nobody knows. I, this is the team I'm obsessed about, right? And I not only didn't know it, I didn't believe it. And this is the model. This is my point. This is the model telling me something I didn't know about a topic that I'm pretty familiar with. And I'm telling you, nobody knows that about Texas right now. And I'm telling the story because I think it's exactly why we have models. Wait, if they lose models, one of the remaining games, won't they be a four loss? They're already a three loss team. Conference, conference loss. Conference oh, losses. I see. I see. Okay. This is what model, this is why we like models. Models allow us to see things that we wouldn't see. We see things before we see them. I mean, in some sense, though, you could just create a a massive tree, right? Right. If you could just write out all possible permutations, assign probabilities on them and sum up all the ones where the end node is Texas making it, which is essentially what a simulation is doing (laughs) in a stochastic way. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah but sampling because, no one, instead of having to enumerate all those. Yeah, right. Sampling versus enumeration. Yeah. Exactly. But either one of those is going to reveal something to you that you're not going to get intuitively. And it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of a pleasure when you see models work that way. And I think this is reliably what a good model does. You see things a week, two weeks before other people see them. Yeah, I wasn't going to put more than 47% on Texas, so not 50. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, all right, guys, that has been a little roundup on the college football front. That's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Big interview coming up in front of us. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter has become our interview segment. In the last couple of years, we are delighted this week to welcome onto the show Chris Del Conte. Chris is the athletic director at the University of Texas. He's going to be our first athletic director after eight and a half years. We've had coaches, players, trainers, analysts. We haven't had an athletic director. We didn't pick him randomly. You guys are going to give me a hard time because he's a longhorn, but He's also the two-time defending champ of the Director's Cup, the award given to the most successful university athletics program, having wrested that away from Stanford after a long run those guys had. He is also sitting on top of the biggest athletic department in the country. We're happy to have him. Chris, thanks for joining us on the show this week. Good to be with you all. Listen, you had a big night last night. The Longhorns opened, but that more importantly meant that the Moody Center opened. First night in a new basketball stadium, a major program. Building a new stadium is a big deal. And doing it the way y'all did it, I think, is interesting. You went on campus and smaller. And last night was a big night. You must have been there. I watched some on TV. I'm going next week against Gonzaga, but I'm dying to hear the reviews on the first night. I think the unique thing about or any kind of campus facility, whether it be football stadium, basketball stadium, they're, for a long time they were built with state-appropriated money, not at Northwestern or Stanford or private schools or anywhere else. And now, now that they're aging, this idea of the new Moody Center is phenomenal for us because, you know, in, a, in an arena on campus, it really is only used about 30, 35 times a year, and it sits empty. And for us to enter in an arrangement with OVG and Live Nation, and build a $450 million arena for the university to put in not a dime. We get all of our basketball revenues, and we get to share up to 50% of their revenues. Um, what a unique opportunity for us. So we've had 72 concerts already in the, in the building. So mm-hmm. we're well-versed in what the arena can and cannot do. And last night we had our first official home opener. We've had a couple of scrimmages, but now home opener. So it was rocking and rolling. It's great for the institution. Right next to it, we built a $60 million practice facility where the team can practice as, uh, when concerts are going on in the venue. So it's state-of-the-art. I would, I would tell you it's probably the finest college venue uh, in the country, hands down. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys did something that you took a lesson from some of the other schools. You put students right around the court. So three-quarters of the court is wrapped around by students what, what other steps have you taken to kind of maximize the game day atmosphere? Oh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of R&D, rip off and duplicate. It's not <laughs> an original idea that I got. I mean, I, I, this past weekend we went to K-State. I get to the game five hours ahead of time. I have a staff. We have a staff meeting. And I say, okay, I want you to go look at food. I want you to go look at music. I want you to go look at uh, uh, entrance video. 
We do everything you could imagine. I have one guy just circle parking lots, tell me mm -hmm. what they do. So when we come back, we have a meeting when we come home and we say, okay, what does K-State do really well? What mm -hmm. can I steal from them that make it our own? Mm -hmm. And the same in basketball. Up when we were building the Moody, we went to all kinds of facilities around the country and saw what they did well or not well. And then said, if we did this, this, and this, uh, uh, it would be good for us. So whether it be food, whether it be how we enter the arena, how we see the arena and music, um, the video system that we put in place, everything has uh, uh, an intricate design and uh, flavor that allows us to say this is the University of Texas. But we stole every idea from somebody. <laughs> and made them our own. How do you think about one of the things we want to talk to you about is the the stuff that seems hard to us as outsiders of being an athletic director. How do you think about the trade-off between maximizing the atmosphere in a say a basketball stadium versus the the economics of your department, the revenue? And, the, and we've seen people in your seat make some rev, what they thought were revenue maximizing decisions that may not have been, but it does seem to be something you must grapple with on occasion. It's interesting because I built two arenas. The one I did at TCU, we did lower bowl seats and raised probably almost 50 million from that lower bowl to get a new arena. But, but we knew our students were going to be in the end zone. Mm -hmm. So we had to figure out the funding model because I, I needed to make sure and raise the stadium mm -hmm. because how we did it here be able to start with atmosphere first, mm -hmm. then worry about funding model. Because mm -hmm. the model here was a little bit different in that I got, we had Live Nation, OVG, which is a concert business that was going to build the arena. We, we used that first, then built with fan uh, experience first. Then we went into what the, the revenue model would be. And if you come to the arena, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the University of Oregon, there was no place called Mac Court. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was balcony driven. So you had balconies with clubs behind it. And then we did a 260 lower bowl seats. And then we had another establishing club on one side. But we created this venue where our students can stand, jump around, but the, the, the donors above them never have to get off their seat. They have their own private club. So mm -hmm. we did all the pro amenities with an environment around it without having the fundraising hassle. When mm -hmm. you build a new arena, you got to start with money first because that's how you build it. And so you build it first, and that's really for recruiting for how you're going to pay for the whole thing. And those donors are going to want to have lower bowl seats. That's what ends up happening. Mm -hmm. so this allowed us to do it differently. And we have a tremendous turn. I can't wait for you to see the Gonzaga gate. It's spectacular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it. I see, by the way, you only comes to the big week game. You didn't go to the UTEP game. Right? <laughs> no, no, I feel bad. The game I went to last year was Kansas and we won it. So maybe it's, maybe I'll just be a good luck charm at the right games. Big game Macy, so we'll start calling. Winer, <laughs> you want to come to a game, just pick like a UTA, okay? Okay, I, I can do that. I can sort that. Um, Chris, I, I, a couple other ones that look hard to us from a distance, and especially looking at some other schools, this idea of getting everybody on the same page. Some of the schools that seem to be cycling through coaches every few years, when people analyze it, they say, well, you know, it's because they can't get everyone on the same page. You got boosters one place. You got university president one place, AD in another place. In fact, Texas has looked at like that on occasion. How have you, it seems like you've got people on the same page, not just you, you've got good partners, but why is Texas that way now? What does it take for an AD to come in and try to get everyone? The phrase that gets kicked around Texas is putting the BBs in the box. How have you done that at the University of Texas? Daryl Royal used to have the saying, 
when BBs are out of the box, it's hard to put them back in. That was his saying. And I have a box of BBs I keep behind my desk. In fact, I used Daryl Royal's desk today for the two of you who don't know when our famous coach and our stadium is named after him. However, when you have a, friend, a chairman, when you have a governor that's a Longhorn, uh, uh, Speaker of the House that's a Longhorn, the president of, or the chairman of our athletics committee and, 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 our, and our region and the president of the university is a Longhorn, those things go a long way to creating synergy and continuity. Um, but 10 years ago, we didn't have that type of alignment top to bottom. But the reality is, I'm a completely self-sufficient operation, about a $235 million athletic budget, completely and entirely self-sufficient. I run an enterprise based on people's passion. And very rational people become irrational when it comes to their passion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality. When you think about whatever one of your, your three of yours passion is, you become irrational when it's your passion. It's hard to, you know, that's just, it, is, it is what it is. When you're really passionate about something, man, you lose, you lose all blinders. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what athletics is for a lot of people. When you run now, I have passionate coaches, passionate student athletes. So the reality is when you're dealing with a passionate group of people, it, it's communication, constant communication, looking at patients, laying out a plan of what we're going to do, and then having success with that plan as you move forward. But it's always a struggle, right? And you look at it, success has a thousand friends and failures an orphan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I took over, we already had four football coaches, three ADs, chances, presidents, a lot of turnover the last 10 years. Alabama went through that after Bear Bryant. I could look at what USC went through. I could start looking at what Michigan went through. I started to mm -hmm. look at a lot of schools do this. Probably the one school that's had a lot more continuity is Ohio State, Oklahoma. One of the things they did, they were patient. Mm -hmm. They were patient during those trials and tribulations, and they were not quick to the trigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're quick to the trigger, starts to create this situation where it's a snowball effect, and it becomes um, a living entity that's hard to get out of. One of the things I've done here is let's let's talk about what we were, where we're going, and why we got ourselves in this footprint. And then here's our plan to continue to move forward. Mm -hmm. And they're not mm -hmm. easy. I made some coaching changes. We decided let's go hire the very best coaching staff we can put forth. Let's start to build within, uh, inward, outward, invest in our facilities, and put ourselves in a position where we can attain greatness if we do this together. And uh, for us to win back-to-back -back directors' cups, uh, when we were when we, from where we were, is just a testimony to our kids and our student athletes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, the, probably the most high-profile thing you do. Well, one of the most high-profile things is the coach coaching hires. And you've made a bunch of them since you've been there. You're in your fifth year now, but my, my list includes obviously Sarkeesian with football, Chris Beard, very high profile hire on the basketball front, but also Vic Schaefer, women's basketball, Mike White, softball, Bruce Burke, tennis, 4-8 flow and track and field. Some of these guys have already won national championships. Hiring is hard in any business. It seems to me that some of these sports coaches, I don't, I, it seems like one of the hardest things in the world to hire for. Very curious to hear your philosophy and practices on these hires. What, what, what recommendations do you give people on, on better hiring? Well, what's interesting is in anything that you're doing, when you're hiring faculty, you think they're going to work out, right? So you have a That's little right. bit of time before they get tenured. My wife's a faculty professor at Rice University. So she has a little time between before she got tenured. Mm -hmm. I knew what she went through. Get to prove herself. Mm -hmm. There's not that window here anymore. 
Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a two, three-year window. And they're like, wait a minute, we got topsy-turn. So it's interesting to see what's happened. But the reality is, when I was our first AD at Rice, you're allowed to make a lot of mistakes. And you're working your way through. And that's how you always tell everyone that's hickory. But when I got to TC, it was like a regional. I mean, this is now Hickory Fieldhouse. It's still a 10-foot rim. It's still a 15-foot free throw and a 94-foot court. It's just bigger. Mm-hmm. So when I go to hire coaches, whatever sport I have, I have I, I try to look at coaches who can handle the gravitas of the University of Texas, the mm-hmm. pressure of what it means to be a Longhorn. No disrespect to Northwestern. It's a phenomenal institution. But you guys have a very well understanding of who you are and your patient level and and and, and the actual idea, can you win a national championship in every one of your sports? It's not attainable every single day. At the University of Texas, we can win a national championship in every single sport. And it's mm-hmm. been proven to be attainable in every single sport, which causes then passionate people to then chase that goal every single time. And then you become, uh, and then you become in, uh, impatient. Mm-hmm. You see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, that, I, what have you learned? Because you've you've hired you you were at TCU before Texas, Rice before that, Arizona, Washington, Cal Poly. You've been involved. You've made hiring decisions before. What have you personally learned? Mistakes you've made or, or corrections you've made over your over your lifetime? Well, it's interesting. I always thought, boy, they must when you just just go hire a winner who has the best record. Mm-hmm. I was looking for best record, not for best person. It doesn't always translate, right? Because I was trying to win the press conference, gosh dang it. Let me go win the press conference. Instead of saying, let me go get the right fit. Mm-hmm. And now I just look for character first. Are they great people? The, the, and I really just flipped the script about 10, 12 years ago. I started to just look deep in myself. and say, guys, why am I making that hire? Because he has a good record. His reputation's not great. Mm-hmm. But let's look at who has a good record and a good reputation. Let's look at who's a fit. Sometimes we say, boy, that guy's great. They're in Pennsylvania. They're awesome. They have no clue what Texas is about. Mm-hmm. Or Arizona or California. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. So really start to more, hone in more on, uh, on personal fit, institutional fit. And then do they fit our culture? And one of the things I'm really proud of the coaches that we've hired at the University of Texas, they're, they're really proud of what we've hired at the University of Texas recently, is they fit our current coaches. They fit the culture of our current staff. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I got, a, uh, I got a great compliment the other day from one of our uh, former ADs. Because that's, the very, that's the best collection of coaches we ever had at Texas. Wow. And I thought that was pretty cool top to bottom. And, what uh, do you think he was referring to? I think just top to bottom. You know, when you win back-to-back director's cups, uh, uh, you start to see that we've won 10 national champs in the last two years, finished second 15 times, uh, third six times, top five. You know, almost every sport last year was the top five except two. It was just, he just says the collection of coaches uh, top to bottom has never been stronger. You know, I thought that was a, that was a, a, a great assessment of our athletic program, yet we only tend to focus on football, men's basketball, and baseball. But as an athletic director, those are my economic engine. But we have 20 other sports to accentuate the brand of Texas. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love the compliment that he felt that our coaching staff has never been stronger or better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you decide when, when, when to introduce a new sport or even how you and generally how you allocate resources across sports? One of the things people talk about that's impressive about Texas winning the Director's Cup is that they have many fewer sports than some of the other schools. Like Sanford has many more and you only have to take like the best 19 out of 20, some version of that. How do you decide? I mean, rowing used to be kind of a club thing. I think I saw an announcement about a hockey 
team. So what do you guys, how do you decide where to put money within, within the athletic department? Well, I mean, we, we, we will fund every single sport at the highest level. At the University of Texas, with a, with a $230 million budget, our goal is to win a championship in every single sport, and we're going to fund it that way. may not mean that we're going to make it, but we're going to fund it that way. We have 20 sports. Stanford has 36. North Carolina has 28. Ohio State has 33 or 34. We have 20. We have to be dang near perfect to win the director's cup just because they're going to count the, the number of sports or they can count whatever of those sports within that number. So we have to be dang near perfect to win it. And that just tells you how great our student athletes are. We have a saying in the weight room, all of our weight rooms, the winning tradition of the University of Texas shall not be entrusted to the Tibet Northern mm-hmm. because everyone is gunning for us. And we know that we're never going to be David in the, in, the, in the biblical story, David and Goliath. We're always Goliath. No matter what you do, Texas is never going to be an underdog. So the burden of being a Longhorn is a burden you carry when you put on that burn orange and white because that's everyone's gunning for you. And you have to be prepared for that. So is when that- we look to add sports, we're going to add sports to make up the, 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 the fit the state of Texas, fit the league we're in, what we're going all about it. Um, but when, when Title IX forced us in 1994 to add three sports and we added softball, soccer, and rowing at that time just because we had an in-proportion balance um, and student body uh, ratio, if you will. But does that – I can imagine now an argument for fewer sports since you want to be that competitive at all of them, but someone might look at a, a roster of 20 sports and compare you to Ohio State, which is a pretty comparable organization, and say, why not have more? Why, why, Chris? Why only have 20? Well, obviously, geography where they were located predicated something different, too, because they have a lot of sports that were geographically right for them. Like, for instance, I love lacrosse, but lacrosse is not popular in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's great in the Northeast. Fencing's great in the Northeast and that, that part of the country. Mm-hmm. Field hockey, we don't have those. They're just things that are, when we were in the Southwest Conference and we were in the Big 12, and now if you look at the SEC, we have geographically popular sports that make our region. Mm-hmm. So it, it, we don't have water polo. We don't have beach men's volleyball. You know, you start to look soccer. It, it is just the way it is. So we pick and choose. And then, by the way, Title Line also affects um, how if you're if you're X, if you're seventy or thirty sixty percent women on campus, your student body is going to have your athletic department is going to have to look at that and say, okay, we have to match that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the prongs that you look at. So. And if you're going to add sports, you must you want to look at add sports that fit your region, and then fit uh, who you're competing against. One of the things that why conferences were important way back in the day was to save money and for travel, because it allowed yourself to then have we're going to play these things. They're all geographically based. Right. Everyone forgets in 1903 that Texas was in the Southeastern Conference. Didn't not I haven't forgotten it? I didn't know it. That's crazy. Yes, and then we moved over. Then we became an independent. Then we created the Southwestern Conference uh, in 1915. Okay. So we're really just going home. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Listen, uh, uh, something that we do a lot around here is analytics, and we talk to people doing analytics around the country. And I'm curious how you think about how you can support how you do and how you might support analytics. It seems to us, having talked to folks in a lot of places, that on the college campuses, it's often a bottom-up, almost a skunk works thing. Somebody knows the baseball coach, and so some student starts doing something for him, and somebody knows the volleyball coach. There's not a lot centralized, and maybe that's fine, but 
we, you know, University of Pennsylvania, they've got a lot of interest. A lot of it's decentralized, just kind of bottom up ad hoc. What, how do you think about it? And what do you think the best role, and this is for Texas, but also other athletic directors, what is a good role for centralized athletic department to play in advancing analytics on college campuses? Well, it's interesting. And it's almost because it's the, the word skunk works is perfect. It's just sport by sport driven. Mm-hmm. I will tell you in basketball, we, we, we have a professor here that came from, from uh, uh, he worked at uh, with, with the San Antonio Spurs. Kirk Goldsberry. You're very lucky and to have he, Kirk down there. And he's doing a bunch of stuff for us on analytics of basketball. Mm-hmm. He came out and looked at analytics the other day about NIL and the transfer portal and who's out there and what could fit with us. So he's been a godsend for us from that. From a basketball perspective, he's been great. One of the things we find out, though, is we only have, like, say, 30 games. In the NBA, they have a they have they got a four, five year, six year, ten year contract, and then they have a historical perspective. But they also have eighty games. And in in uh, in, in, in the baseball, they have one hundred and sixty games. We only have forty eight games, so or fifty six games. So you start to look at that a little bit. The point, the, but we use them like baseball. will use analytics quite a bit for what they're doing within a pitching and with a batting. Basketball mm-hmm. will use them. Uh, we have coaches that I don't believe in that stuff. Yes. Get in there and just, you know, and, and, and we have a few. I mean, I got some old school guys here that I like, hey, yeah. that's all bullshit, Del Connie. <laughs> yeah. No, we, 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 we run into that on occasion. Adi. When you say that it is a team by team, do the teams have money to support an analyst if you, if they ask for it or you just, or do they have to sort of pay for it with their own budget? No, we do a big zero based budget at the end of the year. We ask them whatever you need to be successful. I ask them, give me, give me things I can do to help you win. Because mm-hmm. the coach is being hired and fired by the, by winning. You know, you can have a team that has a phenomenal GPA, does everything correctly, and they're 0 and 10. They're no longer coaching. Mm-hmm. So when analytic, if, a, if a coach believes in analytics, I will go hire the person. We'll, we'll, we'll do whatever we need and say, okay, for instance, with Kurt Bowling, he, he was really helping Shaka. Now you got you Beard. He looks at Shaka, looks at Alex, said, okay, who can shoot where and why? Where is his best percentage? We're doing the same thing with Coach Beard, but he has another guy that all day, every day, all he does is chart every shot because in the basketball, they got the, they got a little shot chart in there that you can, that you can cover. So when you, when you got your ball, it tells you exactly where you're shooting from and how the percentages are, and you use that. Mm-hmm. For him, it's great. I have another coach that doesn't believe in any of it. It's crazy. I have some like tennis. Looks at analytics a little bit different. They really want mental. They want a, a, a team coach, a mental coach, more mm-hmm. to talk about what you do and how you deal with pressure. Mm-hmm. And I have my other my other tennis coach who wants all analytics. Talks about okay, where they hit the ball, strike. So each coach is different. I let them fund them different. They turn it into me, and I just pay for it. Go ahead, Adi. Jump in. Is there any shared resources? I understand like different teams need their own people, but is any any training analytics that you share or health analytics or any of that nature? No, it's across the board. It's yeah. silo driven because mm-hmm. I treat each coach as their own as their own entity. So there might be a little. We do a little bit of that stuff in, in the in the body shaping when you come down. We have a whole little green room. They do all that, putting all these testing is to look at how your body is. We do all that stuff. But when it comes to just sports specific, we let each coach pick and choose who they want and then and then use. Sometimes they hire a full-time person. Sometimes we'll we'll just we'll we'll go out and hire a consultant. They'll come in and set up shop for the year. It all depends. But 
each sport is so driven. So we allow each sport here to do that. When I was in other institutions, we try to do more of a broad base. But tennis, tennis might be different than football. Mm-hmm. Football, you know, so it's just a completely different entity. It's better for them to do it themselves than I can hold them accountable a little bit differently. Got it. We spend a lot of money on it, by the way. It's crazy. Good, good. We think it's good investment. You know, we talk to NFL teams and they have $200 million payrolls and some of them are reluctant to hire a, you know, $200,000 analyst. And it's a little, it seems a little short-sighted here and there, but it sounds like you guys have a lot going on in many different corners. One last question for you, Chris, if you can solve a mystery for us. And I mean that pretty sincerely, though, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek there. How can we understand some of your colleagues around the country signing 10-year, $100 million coaching contracts, a lot of it guaranteed. And what, what is the leverage that a coach has over a university in those situations? How can we understand that? Well, I, I, we just discussed the idea of running an enterprise. So let, let, let's just look at my, my, uh, my uh, football, my, my economic budget for me, right? I have, if you had 20 shampoo products and only two made money, would you keep the other 18? <laughs> it depends. <laughs> no, no, I asked that for you. Could you look at Jack Welch and his book of winning? He cut every one of those, any one of those programs mm-hmm. or not one or two. He spun them off. His stock went through the roof and all of a sudden he became the greatest CEO of all time. Mm-hmm. But by federal law and by what is happening, I have to run a business operation based on principles that are not financially sound in terms of economics of running an athletic program. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that, there's only two self-generating uh, programs in my entire budget. And I don't have one dime from the university. Last year, I gave back to the university a little under $30 million. Okay. So we are, we are a revenue source for the university. Mm-hmm. Yet, I am, I am producing, running an athletic program, and we're talking from the plumber to the custodial engineer to the air conditioning HVAC. I do everything ourselves. Okay. So they're all in my, they're all employed by us. So when I'm running this enterprise based on people's passion, and I have two revenue streams that generate all the revenue to be great in athletic programs, then all of a sudden, when you're trying to hire a coach and a coach is successful, and you're, you're allowing yourself to then put yourself in a position where the market dictates the contract like this. If you don't participate in that opportunity, that coach leaves and your economics have a downturn, how are you funding all 20? Mm-hmm. 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 You see what I'm saying? That's a mistake they make. They make, that's a mistake we all make. We start to look at it and say, okay, wait a minute. Oh my God. At, at the University of Pennsylvania, my wife's from Philadelphia, how many of the programs are outside of your endowment, are going to generate revenue for the institution? Or are they all living off the big endowment that you have? At my school, because I'm self-generating, you end up making decisions based on the totality of your entire athletic program if you want to be great because you only have two revenue sources. That's all I have you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but a mm-hmm. lot of schools have the same thing. And then the market is driven because someone else wants them. If you have a successful coach, someone's going to pay them and pay them more if you want to keep them. You're going to have to pay them, and the market so, dictates it. So we're 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 believers in the market for sure. Um, and I'm and I'm I understand the general logic of what you're saying. I'm curious about the sensibility of some of the extremes that we've seen in recent years, 
And can't you make the argument like these guys are saddling? This is the most important income source for the athletic department, maybe the university. And they're saddling, in some cases, they're, they're tens of millions of dollars in buyout because they're bad decisions. So it, I mean, is there going to be a I'm not saying I'll. By the way, huge fan of Sark, not arguing his contract at all. But you look at some of your people around the country signing much bigger guaranteed contracts and then paying a lot to get out of them when the guy doesn't work out as well as I think they, he will. Yeah. And you know what? Like I said, success has a thousand friends and failures in orphans. Yeah. And you look at it that way and say, gosh, dang it, that was, if there wasn't state funds, their funds didn't hurt the, uh, your department, they didn't hurt the institution. There was no burden on the institution. They made an economic decision one way or the other. What we look at is say, boy, did that affect your, did it affect your department? It didn't. Mm-hmm. Decisions I make on this campus did not affect one academic iota of this department mm-hmm. on campus. Mm-hmm. So you're going to look at that. I'm going to, we're going to have discussions with our president, our chairman of the board and say, here's what we're going to do and not going to do. But at the end of the day, when you look at decisions that are being made like this, they're all over the country. And you go, why did they make that decision? Well, when you're living in the chair and you're trying to run an athletic program that says, guess what? I have 523 student athletes. They're all on scholarship. I got to fund this entire athletic enterprise. And you got two revenue sources that do that. You make decisions based on those decisions and the people and the willing of of your institution to do that. Not one person decided I'm going to pay this coach X. That's what I'm saying. When I hire a press conference, there's a lot of people saying, boy, that's a great hire. Mm-hmm. Well, successful. When it doesn't work out, that guy's a bum. But a decision of that investment is not made in the vacuum. And a decision to let go of a coach is not made in the vacuum. And most of the time at the level that I'm at right now, it does not affect the institution mm-hmm. because those decisions are, are harbored and housed in, in, a, in a completely different area of the, of the university that is self-sustaining. Um, with that model. Okay. So just, so I, I hear you. I just want to make one sure. So sometimes we want to say all oh, the agent really got to that AD, like they blame the agents essentially, and they're really exploiting. And, and you're saying actually mostly no, mostly it's market and mostly it's reasonable. If you give, if you consider all the forces. And by the way, also you're saying don't criticize just the ones that don't work out because you can't judge that. You should judge it as the time of the signing. Is that the right way to think about it? You're I, mostly. I, I, I can, I can, I can argue all of them. You can argue that every agent just twisted the situation. But guess what the agent did? Took advantage of capitalist market. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And said, here we go. But again, my funding principles of a department are completely different than what a capitalist society would be like. Mm-hmm. I'm encumbered by federal laws and rules and regulations that say we're all in this together, all for one, one for all. Yet I only have two revenue streams. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you have two revenue streams to fund an entire athletic program, and by the way, we're the Olympic development for, for our country. When you go to other countries in the world, they are, they already have Olympic, when we're, our swimmers, our track and field athletes, every one of our Olympic sports are funded through sports, through college. Mm-hmm. They're coming from where? The athletic department that, that mm-hmm. is funded through football, men's basketball. So mm-hmm. these economic decisions you make, if, 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 you're, if you're generating this revenue to fund your athletic program and a salaries dictate that, or someone else is going to hire that coach, which normally happens, or someone drove the market, however you want to look at it, those are the decisions you're faced with. Mm-hmm. They're easy to criticize. Mm-hmm. Easy to criticize. Hard when you're inside to operate when you're looking at your funding model across the board. Mm-hmm. 
All right. All right. Appreciate appreciate. We asked to understand it better and you've helped us understand it better. Um, Chris, we need to let you go. Uh, tell us anything about your Saturday coming up. Your your former employer is in town. It's, it's even after the Patterson. We've got the former TCU head coach on staff with the Longhorns. Big day. They're undefeated. Top 10 game days in town. How will you spend the day? What what will that day be like for you? Oh, it's uh, why well, I, I get really early and I get a crew about 10, 15 people and we walk through the entire stadium. Top to bottom, make sure it's completely clean. I want to make sure when we welcome 105,000 guests to our, to our home that it looks spectacular. Hmm. Uh, so we'll walk the stadium, then we'll go look to get ready for game day, take a shower, and then we'll invite uh, uh, you know 105,000 people to, to GKR. Uh, uh, and we have a whole setup. I spent a lot of time at Disney. And I looked at how they're set up. You know what what Disney does from that experience from the moment they get their ticket to they hit the parking lot to they hit the first ride, the food. We spend a lot of time talking about that experience. So we really, an uh, experience is a big thing that we do. So I'll spend the whole day uh, uh, looking at everything that we do because we have Bebo's Boulevard, Smokey's Midway, the concert series, game day. It's just a great day for us to show off the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously we'll come at the game at uh, 6.30. So we're excited about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, wish you the best with it. Wish you the best with all you're doing there at the university. We look forward to following it and hearing more from you down the road, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate you, fellas. Be good. Absolutely. Chris Del Conte, athletic director at the University of Texas, first-time guest here on Wharton Moneyball. All right, guys, that has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This has been Cade Massey for Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, who are with me here on this last quarter for our fourth comrade, Eric Bradlow, for Matty Dats, the boss man, for Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man, Thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. 